Our text for this morning is Psalm 72 of Solomon. God, give your justice to the king and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring well-being to the people and the hills righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted among the people, help the poor, and crush the the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May the king be like the rain that falls on the cut grass, like spring showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days and well-being abound until the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coasts of the islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. For he will rescue the poor who cry out and the afflicted who have no helper. He will have pity on the poor and the helpless and save the lives of the poor. He will redeem them from oppression and violence, for their lives are precious in his sight. May he live long. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May prayer be offered for him continually, and may he be blessed all day long. May there be plenty of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of the mountains. May its crops be like Lebanon. May people flourish in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever as long as the sun shines. May his name, may his fame increase. May all nations be blessed by him and call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders. Blessed be his glorious name forever. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are concluded. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, Jim asked me a couple of weeks ago if I wanted to preach. He said, hey, would you like to preach the, the psalm on, uh, on uh, the first Sunday in November? And I thought, well, that sounds great. I love the psalms and I love to preach, so of course. And then later that week, I sat down at my desk in my office, and I began to work through it. And I realized what you probably already noticed, that this is a, this is a very peculiar psalm. This is a psalm that talks about the wonderful qualities of this kind of godly king or leader. And then I realized, wait, he said the first Sunday in November, so two days before the election, And then I must admit, I spent the next several days completely nervous about how to deal with this text because I believe it is charged with so many ideas and themes that are running through our minds now as we look at the direction our country is going to go over the next four-ish years. But nevertheless, this psalm is not about America. We know that. Um... But we will be able to engage with it, I believe, to fruitfully shape how we think about leadership, how we think about what it is God has in mind for a a just and righteous society. 
So after I got over my initial surprise, I sat down and I really enjoyed getting through this psalm. So let's talk about this psalm, Psalm 72. This is a psalm written by Solomon, and it is the very last psalm in what's known as Book 2 of the Psalms. Psalms, uh, as a book, is 150 chapters, and it's broken up into five distinct sections, and this is the last psalm of the second section. And it describes the perfect Israelite king, and it describes him as being righteous and being just, and that his rule, as, so long as it's righteous and just, will rain down blessings on both him and the people of God. And it tells us that Israel had in mind a standard for their king, a standard they could hold him to, a standard that they knew God would hold the king to. In fact, Psalm 72 really might just be a beautiful poetic summary of some very important sections of the book of Deuteronomy where God talks about what it looks like to live under his rule and even gives provisions for the king that would one day come, even though to request a king was an act of rebellion against God himself, but God already had provisions in the Deuteronomic code for how that king should operate and what he should be like, and he would be righteous and he would be just. And then the book of Deuteronomy ends with God's promise to either bless the faithful nation of Israel or to curse the unfaithful nation of Israel. And we feel all of those themes tied up here in Psalm 72. And it's interesting, we have a narrative account of Solomon actually praying for these very things in 1 Kings chapter 3. David has just died. Solomon has just taken the throne. And God asks him, what can I do for you? Solomon replied, You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity, important qualities of an Israelite king. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. You hear that in the first two lines of Psalm 72. Solomon continues, Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. Another blessing we see take place in Psalm 72. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. Again, Psalm 72. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And in that beautiful prayer where Solomon could have requested wealth or power, when God asked, what can I do for you? He instead requested wisdom and righteousness to properly judge his people. And that's what we get in Psalm 72. Now here's the deal. That was the standard. That was even Solomon's plea. And God did give him wisdom. And then because he asked for wisdom, he also blessed him with great wealth and power and people. And he expanded the borders of the, of the kingdom. Yet, if you, if you go through the historical books, First and Second Samuel, you get um, Saul, uh, King Saul and King David. And then in First Kings, you get Solomon. And then you get his son, Rehoboam. And then you have Jeroboam. And the nation splits. And then the kingdoms are functioning kind of parallel to one another. There is no record of any king that lives up to Psalm 72. No one ever matched up to the standard God gave. And yet when we look at Psalm 72, we can see some very interesting descriptors of God's kingdom, five to be exact. And those are, those are what I want to cover now. So if we look at just the first four verses of Psalm 72, we notice the character of God's kingdom. 
His kingdom has a unique character, and he requests that his leaders, his human leaders, will embody this character as it is embodied in God himself. The, the psalmist, Solomon in this case, by the way, Solomon wrote one other psalm, so he's credited with two. This is, this is one of them. Solomon says, God, give your justice to the king, your righteousness to the king's son. See, he wants the king, and he wants, the, he wants himself, as we see in 1 Kings 3, and he wants those who are going to follow to, to govern the people on behalf of God. Give your justice, your righteousness. This king will judge your people with righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. And then he asks, may the mountains bring well-being to the people and the hills righteousness, justice, righteousness, heavy themes. But that phrase, well-being, it's an interesting way to translate the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is often considered like the peace of God. But I love that the, the CSB actually wanted to take it maybe even to a more all-encompassing idea that you, you will be well off. You will be, to sit under the, the peace of God is to truly be well and whole. Bring these things to the people. May this king vindicate the afflicted. Doesn't that sound like God? Among the people. Help the poor. Crush the oppressor. This king is to have the very character of God himself. And so bless those that require the, 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 someone to take care of them and to bless the nations. Righteousness is the very clear theme of these opening verses. And if you look at the biblical accounts of the expectations of godly leadership, in what, do you, what is the thing that is most frequently um, given as a characteristic of a godly leader? What is the thing that is most frequently requested of those who lead well? I thought it might be justice or maybe mercy or even a fear of the Lord. But it's so fascinating. Over and over again, it just calls for the king to be righteous, to have the pure character that represents God well. Righteousness, one commentator put it, is the soil in which shalom flourishes. And I like that. Righteousness is the soil in which peace with God or well-being flourishes. And Solomon didn't do a very good job of that. <laughs> he did not bring peace. He went after foreign wives and started to marry and marry and marry and collect all of these women to himself. He built up the army, which was an indication that he was not trusting God to provide things that God said not to do. He started to even worship the idols of these foreign women. So he, he did not bring peace. He brought division. In fact, it was only after his reign that the nation of Israel split into two, ten tribes to the north, known as the nation, new nation of Israel, and two tribes to the south, known as the nation of Judah. But nevertheless, we see the character of God's kingdom as primarily stemming from righteousness, which results in justice and peace. And then we see the next quality of God's kingdom in verses 5 through 7 is its duration. How long will this kingdom last? He says, may they fear you while the sun endures. And think about it from an Israelite perspective. How long has the sun endured? They couldn't fathom a time when it wasn't, and they can't fathom a time when it won't be. As long as the moon, throughout all generations. 
May the king be like rain that falls on the cut grass, like spring showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days and well-being abound until the moon is no more. It basically says that should the king live like this and function under God's righteous character, that this kingdom will have no end. And we suddenly run into some extreme hyperbole. Well, Solomon couldn't have believed that he would be eternal. Solomon couldn't believe that he would at one point not pass away and the kingdom would pass into the hands of his son. It's our first clue that this psalm might be pointing to something in the future that not even Solomon understands just yet. But we have the well-being, the shalom will abound until the moon is no more. Solomon's reign we know did not last. He died and the kingdom was split in two. We see even in these first seven verses that Psalm 72 is majestic, magisterial. It's incredible, yet it's aspirational in nature. It really doesn't deal with what is. It paints a vision for what ought to be. And so when we read through this, it should stir some sort of fire in our belly that things are still not right. The third quality that we come to And Psalm 72 is in verses 8 through 11, and we see the expanse of God's kingdom. We've noted the character of his kingdom. We've talked about the duration of his kingdom. Now let's talk about the expanse of his kingdom. How big is it? Because Israel is actually a rather small country at this point. You could have geographically picked up the nation that David had built and conquered and expanded and which Solomon expanded even further. You could have picked that up and brought it over here. And then in terms of the geography that you and I know, it would fit inside the state of Oklahoma between Tulsa and Stillwater and from the Kansas border to the, to the Texas border. It's not that big. But look at how the psalm talks about how expansive this kingdom is. It says, may he rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates, a major, major river in that part of the world, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust, so that would be the people to the south and to the east. May the kings of Tarshish, so that would be the people to the west and the coasts and islands bring tributes. And the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts that would be down towards Egypt. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. This is a rather expansive kingdom that Solomon is talking about, yet it didn't, it didn't really happen for Solomon. Sure, he expanded his father's borders, but in the end, again, his kingdom resulted in actually a fractured nation. If nothing else, we could actually say that it shrunk by the end of his rule. Still, there's something about Psalm 72 that calls us to see something incredible might be coming down the road. And then we ask, okay, what's the fourth quality we see here? In verse 12, we pick up the nature of God's kingdom. It says, he, the Sicilian king, will rescue the poor who cry out and the afflicted who have no helper. This is a benevolent king, a king that cares for those who are down and out. He's not only providing for the wealthy of the country and building their wealth, he's caring for the poor. He will have pity on the poor and helpless and save the lives of the poor. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious in his sight. This kingdom is one of compassion, provision, and care for those most in need. And Solomon, he didn't do that either. In fact, as he started to build up his armies and to take in the people as his property and those, all of his servants, it said that he is known as the one who made, quote, our yoke heavy. 
I think early on in his reign, maybe even before his reign, he pins Psalm 72 with an idea, a divinely inspired idea for what this kingdom could be. And it just does not happen like that in his ministry. And there we might have another hint as to what Psalm 72 is ultimately getting at. Because if Solomon, who gives this beautiful vision of compassion and care for those who are down and out, makes their yokes heavy, that should, if we're reading canonically, if we're letting the two Testaments talk to one another, that should, that should imag- uh, stir, stir in our imaginations. A man who said, uh, like, I can make your burden light. My yoke is easy. The final thing we see in Psalm 72 are the blessings of God's kingdom. It says in verse 15, May he live long. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May prayer be offered for him continually. And may he be blessed all day long. May, it be plenty, may there be plenty of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of the mountains. May its crops be like Lebanon. May people flourish in the cities like the grass of the field. So it talks about material wealth coming as a result of his rule on behalf of God in righteousness. It talks about that his people will pray for him, and that will result in blessings for him. And it talks about that he will in turn bless them with plenty of food. It even says, may it wave on the tops of the mountains. That is always known as the hardest place to grow crops. And it says we're going to be so blessed by God that even the mountaintops will be covered in waving crops. The cities will grow in population as they flourish with people who are now as numerous as the grass of the field. Now you start to hear some Abrahamic covenant material start to run through this psalm. Verse 17, may his name endure forever as long as the sun shines. May his fame increase. May all the nations be blessed by him and call him blessed. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is given the covenantal promise by God that God will give him a great land with a lot of people and that his nation, his name will be blessed and he will be a blessing to others. In verse 16, Solomon asks that the people will flourish. In verse 17, he asks that his name will endure and he asks that all will be blessed by him and call him blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. And that's what Solomon envisioned the, the, the king, who, who, king who, who rules God's people on God's behalf would do. Now Solomon achieved some of that, but it did not last. This is why I was a bit nervous about Psalm 72 being the text that we have just a couple of days before an election. I'm well aware of the weight that this week carries for many of us. And so I want to just pause to talk briefly about what I am calling Tuesday's temptation. I think it's this. I think Tuesday's temptation is to place too much hope in America's character, duration, expanse nature, and blessings. Psalm 72 paints a vision for the nation of Israel that the nation and its leadership never really lived up to. But I fear that it's passages like these that we as uh, political-minded Americans and who are trying to really um, to, to live out our proper civic duty, we look at this and we we fail to see the difference between the two. And we look at, okay, Let's deal with America's character, its duration, expanse, its nature, and its blessings. Well, if we do that, 
I think that America may fail on just as many accounts as Israel did. In terms of the character of America, contrary to righteousness, justice, and shalom, the peace of God, the well-being that only God can give, it feels as though our nation is in, in, embroiled in this us-versus-them mentality. Saying things like, I don't know how you could be a Christian and vote for fill-in-the-blank. Heard it on both sides. In terms of the duration versus the true eternality of the kingdom of God, I, I feel that we are looking at this election as though it's the most important thing ever because America is the most important thing ever. And we have to make sure that this, this thing keeps going down the tracks in perpetual uh, bliss and prosperity. soul of our nation is at stake. I've heard that put that way several times. Well, what about the expanse? Um, the kingdom of God has this universal rule. Israel was never able to attain it and probably was never intended to do so. This psalm seems to be talking about something more but I feel as though in terms of the all-encompassing rule of, of this, this, uh, this country that you and I are truly blessed to live in, we fall into this trap where we begin thinking that my life and my rights as a citizen of this country are the most important things to me. The nature of the United States right now in general is rather contrary to grace and compassion that we see in Psalm 72. I hear things like my anger, aggression, and tone, um, my polarizing speech are justified because, and then they just talk about what they're really afraid of. Because they might win, or because he or she, they just don't get it. And so it justifies this graceless rhetoric. Many of us are really interested in the blessings that come as a result of this country, and it really is a blessing to live here. But that seems to run somewhat contrary to the good gifts that God himself can bestow. And so before you and I take stock of the political situation and the landscape and we start to ask questions of um, financial ramifications of this election, social ramifications of this election, political, judicial ramifications, and we start to think of all these things that are tied to how we or those we love can benefit from it, let's just maybe consider the fact that we need to temper our concern and recognize afresh all the good blessings you and I already have in Christ and all the good blessings that God will bestow on us that far outweigh and far um, extend beyond this life in this nation. Um, on October 16th, the uh, Wednesday night, Drew Moss gave a fantastic lesson about uh, politics and the Christian. And he wasn't, he wasn't limited to a text like this um, but it was just a, it was more of a, a lecture, and it was very, very helpful for me to hear his thoughts. They were so profound, and he brought so much wisdom to the subject. In fact, I would, I would highly recommend that any of you that haven't seen it, go um, uh, to, to Facebook, if you have it, and, and search for the Sunnybrook Media page and scroll down to October 16th. 
And here Drew share um, some phenomenal words of wisdom. But I, I just j- jotted down a few notes that I thought would be useful for our conversation here today. He said, we need to remember that Christianity is bigger than any political party. Any form of government um, and any parties that sit underneath that government, by definition, sit under the umbrella of Christianity and therefore under the umbrella of God's rule. He says many organizations, and he thought this was an important reminder for us to hear, many organizations are just, quite frankly, at odds with God's standards for righteousness and justice. He says the kingdom of God stands over and above and in judgment of everything else. So whoever it is you support, whatever it is they represent, just know they will be one day judged by the standards of God. And Drew thought it was important for us to remember that. And then he gave us a couple of reasons that Christians sometimes stumble into doing politics poorly. Um, well, he points out that we try to sometimes make politics more than they should, bo- should be, again, with phrases like, this is the most important election that I can remember or that's ever going to take place. He challenges us not to succumb to what he calls package deal ethics, where we have to accept all the principles of one side of the ticket in order to be a, a, a true supporter of that particular party. He says, there, there is no single system of ethics that you and I as Christians can faithfully hold on to without going against the teachings of Scripture. He challenges us to, uh, to, to recognize that we can succumb to the world's way of talking about politics, where anger and vitriol um, kind of muddy the waters, and it just gets caustic. And then he gives us this wonderful reminder that we often get confused over our, what is our true citizenship, and we think that citizenship of this country is as important as it gets for us. Brothers and sisters, I would ask that if we were to take stock and evaluate our speech and our actions when it comes to um, leadership, would the world know that we are actually citizens of heaven? Or do they perhaps see that the true American religion has become, maybe always has been, politics? Have you and I done well to properly discern the difference between exercising our civic duties, the difference between that and allowing our hearts, our minds, our souls to be consumed with the outcome of elections or any other policy changes? Can you and I go to the polls this Tuesday without catastrophizing the notion that our guy might not win? Barnabas Piper is a Christian author, and he he had a very challenging quote um, that I believe came out sometime in September. It's two parts. He's speaking to two different camps here. He says, Christian, if you feel politically homeless... You're probably right where God wants you. This world is not our home. We serve a greater ruler, and we're to represent his kingdom here. And it looks nothing, not a bit, like our present political powers and structures and parties. And then he follows that up. So that might be you. You might be the... Uh, some people call themselves political agnostics. Other people call themselves political um, homeless. But... Um, if you're just like, I feel really uncomfortable with both of these, Barnabas encourages you, that may be a sign of health. 
in you. That may be a sign that you are seeing with some, uh, some clarity of mind that not all of these things tend to line up with the kingdom of God. Maybe that's you. But he's speaking, he speaks then to those who, who definitely don't align with that first part of the quote. He says, Christian, if you feel at ease in either major American political party, you're in a bad place. Pretty strong statement there. You likely have placed the values of your party, of power, of man-made structures over the words, values, economy, and reality of Christ's kingdom that you are called to represent. Again, strong language. Maybe even some slight overstatement, but I think that we can agree that he's hitting on something that is likely pretty true. There is no major political stream that you can feel altogether comfortable in as a believer because none of them are a fair uh, replacement for the ethical norms of the Christian faith. And Barnabas just asks us to consider that. And then it's, it's fine if we don't really know what to do because I think Psalm 72 and then other places give us a vision of God's rule and what it's supposed to look like on this earth. And so that's where we can turn to other passages like Isaiah. Isaiah gives this beautiful image of a just king that will one day come. Psalm 72 is never quoted in the New Testament as a messianic psalm. It's never really referenced in that sense. But uh, we can either decide, was Psalm 72 then just a, an over-the-top extrav- extravagant example of royal propaganda written by a king, or is there something to the fact that no human could ever pull off the standard that it sets? Because when we get to Isaiah chapter 11, we get this picture of someone who will come and rule differently than anyone we've ever seen. It starts with, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. That tells us that it's going to be in the line of David. Jesse is David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of, and look at these qualities of this one to come. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. That sounds like Psalm 72. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. That's Psalm 72. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips, and faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. This is the prophetic call for the one who fulfills Psalm 72 to one day come. And if you go, and if you just have a little bit of wonderful time on your hands this week, go and read Isaiah 61, 62, and 63, and it gives you an even fuller picture of this. But in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 4 in particular, Jesus shows up the Son of God incarnate, and he goes to a house of worship, to a, to a local synagogue in Nazareth, and he, he confuses some, he blows the minds of others, but in a sense, he says, let me tell you something about Psalm 72 via Isaiah 61. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, 
As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And this is a quotation from, Psalm, from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Psalm 72. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, Psalm 72, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, Psalm 72, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, waiting for him to teach. He had read the text, and they were waiting for him to start to preach and to teach them from this text. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So if you and I are looking for someone who can lead us like that beautifully righteous picture of Psalm 72, Luke chapter 4, Jesus tells us it's already here. It has already been fulfilled. But then Jesus, he doesn't last that long. After a while, he suffers. The one who brings justice and alleviates the suffering of others, he dies under the suffering of others. But then in 1 Peter 2, we get this incredible picture of how this just king who dies at the hands of injustice calls us to suffer well with him. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, he was righteous. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. We have righteousness and justice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, Jesus comes, and he is the king of Psalm 72. He is the one who has the character of God. He is the one who will rule forever. He is the one whose kingdom has no ends. He is the one who is by his very nature compassionate and full of grace. And he is one who can give us all the blessings we could ever want. And he calls us to likewise follow him in righteousness and in justice. Neither presidential candidate can save you. There is no party, no senator, no representative, and no Supreme Court justice that can save you. But Jesus saves. And in him, we have our hope of promise and redemption. And this hope is an everlasting hope. And when we consider that kind of hope this week, when we look at the polls, when we look at the results, when we look at what the next four years might look like, when we look at the next 100 years might look like, it is not our hope in what these people, these feeble, fallen human beings can do or pull off. That we, that's not where we hope. We hope in God and in Jesus who has secured all these wonderful qualities that we see in Psalm 72. And that should do a number of things to you and I as we work through what life is going to look like going forward. Our long-lasting hope shapes how we pray. It shapes our prayers. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul says 
to his disciple Timothy. He says, first of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and for all those who are in authority. And then he tells us why. So Paul says, I want you to pray for everyone, and then I want you to consider those who are in charge of everyone. doesn't call them Christians, just says those who are in charge of everyone. I want you to pray for them so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Doesn't that sound nice right about now? This is good, he says, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Have you ever considered how you and I respond to the events that will transpire on Tuesday? Can either please God and represent him well to a broken world that desperately needs to know who he is and what it is like to have a relationship with him, or it can grieve God and give just a terrible witness to a world that's watching how we will react. The second thing our long-lasting hope is, is it's rooted in our true identity. So many of us identify as Americans or as this party or that party or supporter of this candidate or that candidate, but our true identity is far, far bigger than that. In Philippians 1, Paul says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, you and I are citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you and that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Does that sound like us? It should be. I pray that it is. I pray that where we fall short of living life in one accord with one spirit, contending together for the truth of the gospel, that we will set aside those things which divide us on these issues. Because we are citizens of heaven. Our long-lasting hope will thirdly call us to humble submission. Somebody's going to win on Tuesday, and then you and I get to decide what we're going to do with that. The Bible will call us to humbly submit to whatever takes place. He says, let everyone, that doesn't, that, that there's no gaps in, the, in that, that category, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So, will we submit? Or will we be frustrated, fail to pray for whoever wins, and find ourselves begrudgingly under their authority, and so it seems, opposing the command of God? and bringing judgment on ourselves. You see, our long-lasting hope will shape how you and I pray and who we pray for. It is rooted in our identity as citizens of heaven. It calls us to humble submission to whoever is placed in authority over us. And then finally, it reminds us of our ultimate allegiance. In the opening chapter of John's very encouraging letter to the churches in Asia Minor, we know it as the book of Revelation John writes this in the fourth verse. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and this is Jesus Christ, the ruler of all the kings, and I'll add presidents of the earth. 
to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion, how long? Forever and ever. The kingdom of Psalm 72 has been manifested in the rule of Christ and will one day be ultimately consummated. So brothers and sisters, our hope is found only in Christ, and it should be the single most determining factor in how we think through the presidential election this Tuesday. May our living hope shape how you cast your ballot, and may our living hope in Jesus Christ temper your reactions with whatever the results may be. In his lesson on um, Christianity and um, politics, Drew Moss said this. It was so good, I had to write it down. He said, On the things that matter most, Republican believers have far more in common with Democrat believers than they do with unbelieving Republicans. And Democrat believers have far more in common on the things that matter most with Republican brothers and sisters than they do with unbelieving Democrats. We have such a wonderful opportunity this week to show a, hurt, a hurting and very dark, lonely world what it looks like to live for something greater than the next four years. So I encourage you, around the water cooler, over the dinner table, and for the love of all that is holy on social media, consider how to engage wisely. Consider what it would look like to, to discern the situation and to respond with grace and compassion in righteousness, with a love of justice and the very character of our God who reigns supremely in this, over this transcendent kingdom that you and I live in. And all the while, we live now as two citizens. But we have to remember this Tuesday that we are, um, we are part of something more. So uh, I'm gonna, this is your homework. As the, as the results roll in and as Wednesday morning comes about, I want you to meditate on these words from Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else can save us, and no one else can rule with the righteousness and justice described in Psalm 72. And that is why this is such an important meal every week, because this is just a way for us to demonstrate both our allegiance and our remembrance to and our confession of the true king of the true kingdom. So, as you gather around with your families or by yourself, I pray that this meal will remind you of who's really in charge.